Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Episode 80, The Land of Cinnamon. The last four episodes have looked at some of the stories which spun off from the conquest of Peru, both geographically and in terms of the characters involved. The two about Colombia involved Bel Alcazar, a character we met during that conquest and who proceeded directly from one to the other. Part of the motivation for conquering the area was to join up Spanish territory in Peru with the rest of the colonies in the Caribbean. This, and the resulting El Dorado rumours, then inspired the events we covered in the last two episodes on what is today Venezuela. Because of this, you can take all of these recent episodes as a sort of package of stories which cover the beginning of Spanish activity in the northwest corner of South America. There was plenty going on concurrently in other parts of Latin America, and we will move on to that soon. But before doing this, there is one more story in this area which needs telling, so that the set can be completed. Like the Columbia episodes, this one involves one of the characters we met in Peru, a Pizarro no less. Like the Venezuela ones, it was motivated by rumours of riches to be found somewhere in the unknown territory which neighboured Spanish Peru, Ecuador, Colombia and Venezuela. About a year ago, as I write this, I was in Leticia. Leticia is a tiny little town on the banks of the Amazon River. It belongs to Colombia, but it's separated from the rest of the country by the vast rainforest, and the only way to get there is by air. You can travel up and down the river into either Peru or Brazil, but these trips take several days. That is what I did. It took a whole day running round Leticia and its sister Brazilian city, Tabatinga, to prepare for the trip. On the list of things to do was getting an exit stamp for my passport from Colombia and an entrance one from Brazil. I needed to buy a hammock, plates and cutlery, a boat ticket and some snacks to keep me going. The boat was basic. It consisted of two decks with hooks lining the ceiling from which the passengers hung their hammocks. We formed lines, about twelve long and five deep, and our hammocks were so close together that if you swung too hard, you would knock into the person lying next to you. There were no walls, so apart from the ceiling, we were out in the open air. In the end, it took four days to reach Manaus. The food wasn't the best, and so I was grateful for the snacks I'd bought, and it also gave me a stomach bug, so I had to make frequent trips to the unpleasant toilet. The lights came on at night, directly above, and they made it hard to sleep. 
Along the way we stopped at a succession of tiny villages, cut off from the rest of the world by hundreds of miles of rainforest. A woman got on at one of these, and she set her hammock up next to mine. Soon she started coughing, and it became clear that she had coronavirus. By the second to last day she had infected me and several others. We arrived in Manaus, hours late and after dark. Another passenger told us that it was dangerous to be on the dock at this hour. He was going to spend another night on the boat, and then leave in the morning. This was obviously unnerving, but I couldn't face any more time in the hammock. Luckily I found a taxi straight away, and got to my accommodation without any issues. This was definitely one of those things which you are pleased to have done after the fact, but which at the time was challenging and exhausting. For all this discomfort, however, I had it easy. I didn't know it, but I was partially following the route of the subject of today's episode, the conquistador Francisco de Orellana. He went over twice as far as I did, and he could only do it at a much slower pace. My boat had an engine. His was powered by the current and by oars. The human danger I was told I faced when I reached Manaus was brief, and it turned out to be fine, whereas because he was encroaching on their territory, he faced constant harassment by the indigenous peoples of the land he passed through. While my food was bad, he had to forage for his, and was frequently hungry. His boat would have had a similar number of people on it to mine, but I'm sure it was much smaller. Of course, he asked for all of this. Nobody forced him to make his way down the Amazon looking for new lands to conquer. But still, it puts my complaints into perspective. It was not El Dorado which Oriana was looking for. For all the manic fever which the promise of gold and silver had created in the last few decades, some had not forgotten what had brought them to the Americas in the first place. It was the non-existent route to Asia and the spices which grew there that had caused Columbus to sail westwards across the Atlantic and the value of those spices had not got any lower in the intervening time. When the minor explorer had made a brief trip down the mountains from Quito to the fringes of the Amazon rainforest, he came back with the news that he had found trees which smelt of cinnamon. I will say from the outset that this was another wild goose chase. While the Spanish will find all sorts of tasty plants in the Americas, chocolate, chili, potatoes, tomatoes and corn are obvious examples. The spices of Asia did not grow there. Scientists have identified a species of tree which is said to smell a bit like cinnamon and which could possibly have been the source of the confusion, but it has none of the same culinary uses as far as we know. And of course, Horigiano didn't know this. And besides, he had another powerful motive for setting off, the same one which had inspired all the conquistadors we've met so far the chance to find his own land to govern, and to step out from under the control of the Spaniards who had already done just that. In this case, it was Gonzalo Pizarro. He was in Quito at that time, and it was he who received the reports of a land of cinnamon. It was Gonzalo who put together the expedition to find it. He commissioned Orellana to be his second in command. Orellana was yet another distant relation of the Pizarros, and he had grown up in Trujillo, the very same town that they had, 
He had arrived in the Americas in 1527, starting off in Nicaragua and then joining the Pizarros in Peru in 1533. He had been a loyalist during their conflict with El Magro, and he was rewarded with the governorship of Quito. This was still a province of Peru, however, so it wasn't enough to satisfy Orijana's long-term ambitions. His most notable action during his two or so years in the position was to found the city of Guayaquil on the coast. Gonzalo began gathering up the men and supplies he would need for his trip down into the rainforest. Sources differ about how many Spaniards he took with him, but it seems it was somewhere between 200 and 300. He press-ganged close to 4,000 indigenous people as well. The first part of the route involved getting down from the high Andes, so they marched through the snowy Altiplano, losing roughly a hundred men along the way, and through the pine forests on the eastern slopes of the mountain range. When he came to a more welcoming valley, he paused, partly to rest, and partly to let Orellana catch up. Orellana had been down on the coast in Guayaquil, and he was surprised to reach Quito and find that Gonzalo had not waited for him. He had with him just 23 men, but they managed to make their way to Gonzalo. Only just, though. As Gonzalo had gone, he had looted the food of the villages he passed through. When Orellana followed his path, his much smaller group bore the brunt of the retaliations made by the angry indigenous people. While he was able to see successive attacks off, he was also running out of food, and of course there was none left for him to loot, as Gonzalo had already taken it all. When he finally reached Gonzalo's camp, it was agreed that the leader would go ahead with a small group to scout the land they were about to move into. They were now faced with a completely different environment. From cold high mountains, they now went into steamy rainforest, but this made it no less difficult. Gonzalo staggered onwards. He found the cinnamon-like trees, and he determined that these were of no real use to them. After wandering around some more, trying to gather more information, the two groups met up again and made camp on the banks of the Rio Coca, a river which flows into the larger Rio Napo and then into the Amazon itself. Gonzalo decided to build a boat and to continue by water rather than hacking their way through the thickening jungle. Once it was completed, they went a bit further but the reports they were getting from the indigenous people they encountered were not promising. They said that there was little in the way of population, precious resources, or arable land further ahead. Already disappointed that the land of cinnamon was clearly a myth, Gonzalo was starting to wonder if this was all worth it. He decided to stop again, and this time, Orijana made the case for being sent ahead to do some more scouting and to gather up some more food. Only Orijana would be able to tell us what was going on in his head at this point, and what his intentions were. There is no question that he had his own personal ambitions, but whether he was already enacting a plan to fulfil them is unclear. Later on, and with hindsight, Gonzalo certainly thought so. He wrote a letter back to the king once his part in the expedition was finished, and in it, he gave an account of their journey and accused Orellana of abandoning the rest of the Spaniards. 
He says that after a period waiting for Oriana to return, they continued onwards to find him. But instead of discovering the advance party in distress, or even having perished, he found that Oriana had left a series of signs so that his route could be followed. This showed that one, he and his men were fine, and two, that they had no intention of returning with the supplies, but instead were carrying on by themselves. For his part, and in the story told by a man named Gaspar de Carvajal, who accompanied him and served as the expedition's chronicler, Orellana argued that after sailing downstream he had reached a point where several rivers converged, and that their combined flow was too strong for him to be able to sail back up river. Within that flow were fallen trees, and one of these had already damaged the boat. While they were able to repair it, attempting to sail against the current carried a heavy risk of the same thing happening again. The only option, he said, was to continue and find out where the river would take them. Where it would take them was the whole length of the Amazon, through thousands of kilometres of rainforest, never seen by Europeans, and even when they reached its mouth, it would be in an uncolonised part of the Atlantic coastline. Of course, Orijana didn't know this, but it was still a brave move. He only had fifty men with him, and he was going into the unknown. The potential rewards were great, however. If he could find somewhere colonisable, he could make the case to govern it. After pursuing Orijana for a while, Gonzalo gave up and led his men back to Quito. From now on, Orijana and his small band are on their own. While they paused to repair the boat, they took the decision to build a second one. When they got going again, they found it difficult. The river ensured that they would make steady progress, but apparently this part of the forest was sparsely populated, and it was difficult to find food. The few indigenous people they did encounter were hostile, and they attacked them when they tried to forage. There were several more attacks, and at times their slow but large and defensible ship was pursued for miles by fleets of small canoes. After a while they entered the land of the Amagua, the people we met last episode, who had developed a civilization of towns and cities. Carvajal's account describes the size of these and provides more evidence of the facts that we discussed in that early episode on the Amazon. There were large and developed settlements here, deep within the Amazon basin. His account will be dismissed in subsequent centuries as an exaggeration or as completely made up but modern archaeology is starting to back him up. The river began to widen. They had reached the section which I travelled down. It was dangerous to land on the shore to look for food, but there were many islands in the middle on which they could land without being harassed by the Amagua. These islands would continue the whole remaining length of the river, and Carvajal says that for the rest of the trip they wouldn't successfully forage on the mainland again. This didn't mean that they wouldn't try, however. Running low on food, at one point they tried to capture a village, but they were quickly repelled. Once they'd cleared a Magua land, they entered the territory of the Piratapuyo. They were forced to fight a battle with them, from which they were able to successfully disengage, and so while it didn't have a great effect on the expedition, it would have one important consequence. Both Piratapuyo men and women 
apparently fought alongside each other on equal terms, and the women were supposed to be particularly ferocious. There was an ancient Greek myth about a tribe of warrior women who lived somewhere in northern Turkey or elsewhere on the Black Sea. They were known as the Amazons, and so after this battle, Orijana gave this name to the area he had explored, and of course this is the name we use to this day. Eventually they realised that the river was rising and falling with the tide, and because of this they knew they must be close to the ocean. They stopped for several weeks to again repair their boats, and make sure that they would be able to withstand a journey on the ocean. With that done, they sailed out of the river estuary and into the Atlantic Ocean. It had been nine months since Orijana had decided not to wait for Gonzalo. Nine months of travelling alone through the rainforest. They knew that there was little point going south, and so they followed the coastline north and then west around the top of South America. At some point the boats were separated, but both managed to reach their destination independently. Orijana's boat then found itself sucked into the Gulf of Perea, the enclosed section of sea between Venezuela and Trinidad. Here the tides trapped them, and it took a week to get out. The good news, however, was that they had almost reached those early proto-settlements in Venezuela we talked about two episodes ago. And so soon afterwards, they docked in Cubagua, and their journey was complete. Most of Orijana's men went to Peru to live out the rest of their lives in the colony. Their leader, however, was filled with excitement after his achievement. He rushed back to Spain to give the king an account of the expedition and to request permission to found a new viceroyalty in the land he had passed through. Again, I think this constitutes evidence that he was impressed with the civilizations he encountered. Conquistadors always preferred large and complex indigenous societies. This is why Cortes and Pizarro were so delighted to find the Aztec and the Inca. While these societies are more difficult to conquer than small groups of hunter-gatherers, or loose federations practicing small-scale agriculture, if it could be done, they provided much larger organized populations for the encomienders, and the land they occupied must be economically productive, as it had been able to support these populations. Orijana must have seen enough to make him think that this land was worth settling, rather than going off on another trip to look elsewhere. Besides winning the approval of the king, Orijana faced a number of other hurdles to his plans, however. Firstly, his route and claims were geopolitically contentious. You might remember that the Treaty of Tordesillas was still in effect at this point. This was the agreement which divided the non-European world in two, one part supposedly belonging to the Spanish and the other to Portugal. The bulk of his route was within the Spanish section. However, the mouth of the Amazon and the route which would be used to colonise, as approaching from Quito again was not really viable, was within the Portuguese half, along with a decent chunk of the eastern rainforest. News of his journey had travelled faster than he had, and so when he reached Iberia, he was detained by the Portuguese king, who wanted both first-hand access to the information he could provide about whether the land was suitable for colonisation, and also to head off any Spanish attempts to encroach on territory he believed should be his. He was held for two or three weeks, at the end of which the king made him a proposal. 
He would sanction Orellana's plan to colonize the area, but he would need to do it in the name of Portugal. Orellana declined and continued on to Valladolid to meet the Spanish king. After an audience, he succeeded in getting permission to create a new viceroyalty, and it was agreed that it would be named New Andalusia. There were conditions, however, and this is where Orellana faced his next problem. He was instructed to found settlements at both the mouth of the river and somewhere near to where Manaus is today. This is a huge area, but Orellana was undeterred. More of a problem were the quotas of men and supplies that the king stipulated in order to ensure the success of the colony. These required money, and Orellana did not have enough. The king was not willing to give him any either, despite putting pressure on him to speed the process up because he was worried that the Portuguese might get in there first. This caused a degree of tension between the two, and the king appointed his own man to take up a prominent position in the proposed colony, and to keep an eye on how preparations were going. Things started to fall behind, and some of the men he had recruited grew tired of waiting and left to go back home. Orellana managed to scrape together more money, including a big chunk from his stepfather, and things finally began to move forward. But then news came that the Portuguese were indeed preparing their own expedition. Apparently one of the men who had gone down the Amazon with him had got into a fight in Seville and had killed his opponent. This man had then fled to Lisbon, where he'd been recruited by the Portuguese king to provide all of his useful knowledge. This gave Orellana an impetus to speed things up, and he started negotiating loans from Genoese merchants. This made the Spanish king uneasy, as he preferred to limit the number of foreigners putting their own conditions on things. Next, one of the ships which was being constructed was found to be defective, and the leader of the Portuguese expedition turned up to spy. He was arrested, and this delayed their rivals, but by this point, Orellana was fed up with the lack of help he was getting from the king. He finally reached the point where he felt he was ready to go, but the royal inspectors would have to agree with his assessment. They found that he had not managed to assemble the agreed number of men, horses or supplies. What's more, of those men he did have, hardly any were Spanish. Spaniards were supposed to make up the majority of the crew, but instead many were English, German, Belgian and even from the rival country, Portugal. The inspectors told him that he was not allowed to sail. They reported back to the king that he was not well enough equipped to even cross the Mediterranean to Naples, and that he did not have enough water to reach his first stop, the Canary Islands. Eventually they agreed that he could go to the Canaries, and tried to make up the shortfall in supplies there. He spent more time there detained, before he was allowed to carry on to the Cape Verde Islands. On this leg, disease broke out, and 98 of his men died. A further 50 were unable to continue, and so they were left on the islands, and this loss of crew members meant that one of the ships also had to be left behind. During the Atlantic crossing, he somehow lost one more ship, and when they reached Brazil, the food was running out. The mouth of the Amazon is a spiderweb of channels, and it was not clear which one led directly upriver. Time was lost as they got lost, and another ship was wrecked by an unexpected tide. 
They had brought a dismantled boat, which was specifically designed for rivers rather than oceans. They spent some time constructing it, and they had to destroy two of their other boats for parts in the process. As they did this, more men died of various causes. Once the boat was built, Orijana went off ahead with a small group, and he was never seen again. The rest of the expedition searched for him unsuccessfully, but in the end they gave up. Some jumped ship, having decided to see if the local indigenous people would accept them into their society. We have no idea if they did. The rest drifted slowly around the coast of Venezuela, where they encountered some survivors who had seen Orijana die. Apparently it was from exhaustion, frustration and despair at how things had gone. New Andalusia was never founded, and Spanish attention was turned elsewhere. If you've enjoyed this episode, and the podcast in general, and you would like to help the show grow, one of the things you can do is to leave a review wherever you get your podcast from. It really helps the show grow, and helps new people discover it. If you're feeling really, really generous, it's possible to make a small donation to cover the costs of creating the show. There's a link with information about how to do this in the show notes. Hope you've enjoyed the episode. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at historyoflatinamericapodcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at historylatinam. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T photo. Thanks for listening. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.